So I want to take your Bibles and turn to Luke 16. Luke 16. There's a French magazine called Le Magazine des Voyages de Pêche. I'm sure you all subscribe to it. But uh, they have this, they ran this story, which was very fascinating. They ran this story about a man by the name of Arnold Pointer. He is a professional fisherman. And a couple years ago, he had this apparently amazing situation where this great white shark got caught up in his fishing nets. We're talking not a small one, a 17-foot female white shark got caught up in his fishing nets. And this guy somehow managed to get the shark untangled out of his nets and set it free so it could kind of go and do what it sharks, whatever they do. And he does this out there in the southern part of Australia. Well, you know, you think fine and dandy, that's a great deal. But uh, there's a problem that has developed. And this magazine reported it. Arnold Pointer has this problem. For the last two years, this shark has followed him wherever he goes every time he's out on the water. And being a professional fisherman, making his money, catching fish, having a 17-foot white shark following you everywhere he goes, well, it just chases all the other fish away. They don't want anything to do with him. This is a huge problem, and, you know, these, these sharks are protected, so you can't, like, eliminate the shark. And this is crazy, but guess what? A relationship has developed between Arnold and he has named the shark Cindy. Okay? And so apparently he goes out in his little boat. He's going to go try to get some fish. Here comes Cindy. And she comes up and she rolls over. He can actually touch her and pat her on her little tummy. He, he thinks, and this is what it said in the article, that, he, that the, like, the, looks at the eyes, look at him. And they've got some eye connection things going on there. Turns on her back. She flips her little flippers. And they've got this wonderful little relationship. Now, when I tell you about a man encountering a shark, usually when we hear sharks and people, that's usually a bad situation, right? I mean, when a shark is coming to a person, uh, that usually results in a loss of limb or a loss of life, right? This is not normal. And let me just tell you something about this story. It's not true. It's a hoax. Even though it's been widely publicized, it's in this magazine, it is being sent around on the email, it's not true. Let me just tell you some another story that's not true. That you, as an American, can live your life without any real thinking about financial principle. Any consideration of stewardship, you can spend what you like when you like it. You are entitled to it. In fact, it is your right as Americans to go and live your life without any financial margin. If you don't have the money on hand, you want something, you throw a little plastic at it and you can get it. It is impulse buying. It is your right as an American. And you can have whatever you want, whenever you want. You can live your life. In fact, you will be a better person if you can purchase what you want When you want it, let me tell you, if that is your mindset, and it is for the most part the mindset of many Americans, that is an even more dangerous proposition than you trying to establish a budding friendship with a great white shark. Because it will consume you and destroy you. Even though it is popular, it is widespread, it's what many Americans think, it is like playing with a shark. It's a hoax, and it'll tear you up. 
The Bible, as we've been talking about in our series on the extreme financial makeover, speaks over 2,000 verses deal with money and possessions. When Jesus was on the earth, he gave 38 parables. 16 of those parables dealt with the issue of stewardship of possessions and of money. And Jesus gave some of his strongest teaching on this subject. And today in our final week on this series, I'd like to draw your attention to a statement that Jesus made in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He said this, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in in much. You can tell a lot about a person by what they do with what they have. If they have a little, see if they can be faithful with that. If you're, if you're an employer, look for the guy or the gal that is faithful with the little that you've given them. That's the one you want to be pouring in and giving the big responsibilities to. If they can prove faithful with a little, they can prove faithful with much. The converse is also true. And he said, Jesus said in verse 11, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus is saying, hey, what you have is really something that has been entrusted to you. And if you can't prove to be faithful with that, who is going to, is God really going to entrust to you heavenly treasure, a great reward, real responsibility in the kingdom to come? You see, this life is kind of like a test. It is a test. God has given us finances, resources, abilities. And it is a test to see if you can be faithful with what God has given you. Those who prove to be faithful, if their faith is in Christ, in the kingdom to come, there is going to be much greater responsibility. Remember when we were in Luke chapter 19 and we looked at the parable of talents? The guy that was faithful with that one, he got or actually the minus in that uh, parable, he got to have ten more. And, and after that, he said, the Lord said, well, you got ten more, I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. Why? Because he is faithful. And Luke 16, 10 through 12, what it does is it stresses why you and I must learn to be faithful managers of the finances that we have. Let me just boil it down to one very simple statement that we can all remember. Present faithfulness yields future privilege. Present faithfulness with what you've got now yields future privilege. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to just take a Sunday to be ultra-practical, to talk about how you and I can be faithful managers of the finances and the resources that we have. I hope that you've seen as we've gone through this and looked at all the theological aspects of what does it mean to be a faithful steward, that you've got this one thing embedded in your mind. How we use our money is critically important to God. This is not a side issue. All throughout the Bible, we went through the Old Testament last week and looked at also principles from the New Testament. This is a critical subject, and let me tell you why. It is because what you and I do with our money reveals a lot about what we believe about our God. And so this morning, I would just like to give you some very simple components of how you and I can be faithful with the resources and the finances we have. Some of these I'm going to merely mention and give a few comments. One of them we're going to spend almost most of our time on, a big chunk of our time on, because it is that 
important. So how can you and I learn how to be faithful with our finances? Well, first thing, it all begins with your heart and your approach to God. The first one is we have to learn how to yield daily. And yield daily has the idea that we do not see ourselves as our own boss, but we actually give our life, in a sense, back to God. When we wake up, once we kind of figure out what our name is and what day is and what part of the country we're living in, we actually acknowledge God as God of our life. We, we acknowledge him by praising him, speaking of his attributes, specifically that he's sovereign, that he's in control, that he is holy, that he's loving, he's merciful. We praise him and we present ourselves to him. Lord, mold me, shape me, fashion me. But I am your man or your woman. And you present, you yield yourself to God. It is a recognition that God owns everything. And, and even the money and the finances I have, God, these really are yours. And my life belongs to you. You see, when we're thinking about life correctly, especially in terms of our finances, we are stewards. A steward is someone who manages another person's property. You know, all this money and your finances and your stock portfolio and your retirement, you know what? Let me just tell you something. You can't take it with you. You showed up here naked and with nothing. You're going to leave here without anything. You are merely a steward. We are actually managers of God's resources in this time. I told a a guy this week, I said, you know, it'd be real good if on a regular occasion you and I got down on our knees just to remind ourselves who's God in our life. So the first thing is, um, if we're going to uh, be faithful managers of our finances and our resources, we have to learn how to yield to God. Let me give you a point of application. Next time you get your paycheck or you sell your crop and you've got, you've got your income, thank God. Just take a minute and praise God and thank him. Say, Lord, this is yours. Thank you for providing it for me. Let me give you a second component to faithful managers and their finances. You've got to learn how to work diligently. Did you know that the primary means by which God actually gives you financial resources is through work? And, and the Bible actually extols work. It is good. It is, in fact, God has equipped us. He's called us. I'm called to be a pastor. All of you are called to some sort of vocation or some sort of place within our families, our society. We have roles. God has gifted us. He is honored when we live for him and we actually fulfill what he's called us to do. But one of the, the primary means God actually gives us money to even be managers of is through work. If you have a, a question about what God thinks about work, then all you need to do is read the book of, like, Proverbs, okay? From the very beginning of the Bible, God says, you know what? You have, like, six days to do work and to labor. The seventh day, I want you to rest. Labor is good. The book of Proverbs, what it does is it takes those who work hard, and oftentimes it contrasts to those who are lazy. And, you know, like, let me give you one. Proverbs 28, verse 19. It says this, He who tills his land will have plenty of food. But he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty and plenty. He who works hard, applies himself, trusts God, asks for his enablement, is in the game, paying attention, seeking to honor God with how he or she does their work, why that person is going to generally have what they need financially. The other hand, on the other hand, and the Bible and Proverbs usually actually says it's the wise man contrasted with the fool, right? 
On the other hand, a foolish, he just chases after empty pursuits. So you need, the second thing you need to know is if you're going to be a, a faithful manager of your finances, you've got to learn how to work diligently. That is the primary means by which God actually gives us resources to manage. Let me give you a third. This is the one that we spent all week last Sunday talking about. You and I, we're going to be faithful managers of our finances. We have to learn how to give graciously. Jesus said this, you can tell the affections of one's heart by the direction of their money. You want to find out what someone really is captured by, what they really love? You could actually find out by looking, looking at maybe the ledger of their checkbook or just seeing where their finances go. In fact, you want to hear, Jesus said, Luke chapter 12, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart captured? Well, all you have to do is look at your finances. Now, like God doesn't say you have to give all of your money and give it all to a church or, or to the mission or something like that. But what he does say is, I want you to recognize this principle. All of these resources, they're mine. I've entrusted them to you. I want to show myself to be faithful in you, faithful to you, and I want you to develop trust in me, so give back to me as an expression of worship. So like in Proverbs 3, 9, it says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. You honor me. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a 10% given as a tithe. That's what the word tithe means. In fact, if you looked at it, remember we did, there was actually Israel was giving 23% of their income to God. They had three different tithes that they were participating in. One that that happened every third year and two that happened every single year. But in the New Testament, what is emphasized is grace motivated giving giving as a response of to our relationship with jesus christ there is not a percentage giving given what we find there is the principle like it says in second corinthians 9 7 each one must do as he is purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver and so what you and i have to do is we want to honor god with our finances it's an act of worship and devotion it's an expression of trust It's a demonstration of God's faithfulness in our life. And so you find a percentage of your income. Okay? Now, 10% is a great benchmark. And it was really interesting. This week, I heard several stories of people talking about how they came to a point in their life where they grew to a point where they were able to give 10% and even beyond. And it was, it was step. It was incremental. But you need to actually figure out, Lord, I, I would like to give this percentage of my income to you. And you establish it up front. And it has to be planned. Now, it shouldn't be something like you absolutely couldn't do. Like if you make $50,000 and you're like, Lord, I'm going to give you $75,000 this year. That, that probably would not be realistic, right? And so like when we looked at the math, these churches in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 8, they gave according to their ability. In fact, they even gave sacrificially. But you put it in your mind, what is it, Lord, that I would want to give? But you've got to be intentional and purposeful. Let me tell you this. If we are not purposeful in our giving, it probably will not happen. You know what will happen? When it even comes to the thought of giving to God, it will be like whatever I have left over versus, Lord, I want to honor you with the first of what I have. Let me give you a fourth component of being a faithful manager of your finances. This is what we're going to spend the bulk of our time on, and that is to budget wisely. Now, if you do not have a thought-out plan of what you're going to do with your money, 
Let me tell you something. There's a lot of people that do. All right? And if you don't have a plan, you're going to operate probably on the impulse of greed and whatever kind of just strikes you like, oh, I want to do this and that. And you, if you don't have a plan, you probably have no idea where your money's going. Now, there's, here's a definition of budgeting that I came across that I thought was kind of interesting. Budgeting is this. It is a method of worrying before you spend rather than afterwards. And actually, the people that keep budgets, that's what they do. Like, oh, man. I mean, this is Karina and I. Like, how are we going to? Okay. Oh, we've got to cut back on this. This is before we spend anything. But we're, like, stressing out and kind of thinking, like, oh, okay, we, gotta, we can only do this. No, we've got to cut back on this, you know. We, there's just no way that's going to work out. But you think it through before you go spending, okay, versus like, oh, I spent all this money. Now what happened? You know, no, you think it through. You budget. In fact, what you want to create in your life is financial margin. If you do not have financial margin in your life, let me tell you a guarantee of what you've got. You've got tension if you do not have financial margin in your life. Financial margin is this. It is cash sources minus cash uses, okay? It's very simple. In fact, we could actually chart it, and you'll see a few charts here, okay? Now, this is really what happens with most Americans. This is what they do. As income increases, so at the exact same rate, so do their expenses. So whatever they comes in, it just goes out, and, what, and so it just kind of follows that plane. And as they mature and they get older, generally you make more money, and they get more income, and as soon as they make more income, they spend it. That's a lot of Americans. But you want to hear... Another scenario that's true of most Americans or a lot of Americans, they actually spend more than they make. Okay, as income increases, their expenses not only increase with income, but they actually surpass them. They have greater expenses than their income. In fact, Ron Blue, a financial uh, specialist, he said this and makes this statement. Eighty percent of Americans owe more than they own. That is pretty staggering. And so this is what happens here. Your spending is greater than your income, and you just spend, spend, spend. And so what? if you ever have a shortfall in your life, like let's say you were like, oh, I really was counting on that sale to go through, and it didn't. Or, you know, I was really hoping that I was going to be able to get that bonus, and it ends up that I didn't. If you have no margins in your life, all of a sudden it sends you into turmoil. And by the way, when your expenses are greater than your income, it's, it's called being upside down. Okay? If you were forced to cash out like, well, I, I, all my debt is being called against me, you would not have the resources to pay. You would be at bankruptcy or at the brink of it. And so you might be going, oh, boy, Grant, you know what? Margin is great. In fact, I believe in it. My parents did this. My, my parents were into margin. But I, I can't do it. I, I, just, I just can't. I, you know, I, need a, I need a better job. I need more education. I need more training. Because I, I, what I need is more money. Because if I had more money and more training and a better job, I would have financial peace if I just had it. Let me tell you something. The issue with financial margin is not income. It's lifestyle. It's not income. It's lifestyle. And it's, I mean, think of it. The truth really is this. Ten years ago, we were making far less probably than what we're making today. A lot of the people in this room, you're making more than your parents ever made. And yet, if we have no margin in our life, 
we're stressing and we're, we've got all sorts of anxiety. We're just not sure exactly how ends are going to meet. And so we have to think about this issue of margin. And if you don't have margin, Willie, you are robbing yourself of much. For instance, if you do not have a financial margin, meaning that you are spending less than you're making, well, you're going to rob yourself of financial freedom. You will never be in a position where you're going to be able to pay for a larger purchase and do so with cash or to be able to get out of debt or, I mean, you won't have it because you are always living at whatever you're making. And so we have to actually deal with this drive and this quest in us that always wants more, 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 shinier, bigger, better, newer, and all of us face it, right? I mean, you just kind of see things or something pops up on the TV or you're in the mall like, oh, I just got to have that. We all have these impulses and cravings. We've got to learn how to deal with it. But if you do not create a situation where you have margin in your life, you rob yourself of the ability of having financial freedom. And let me also tell you this. You also, if without financial margin, you rob yourself emotionally. Because you go out and you buy things that you cannot afford. But you don't know it initially. You're just excited. I've made the purchase. I feel better. I had a hard day at work and I bought this toy and I've got it. But then it starts to sink in that you really couldn't afford that toy. And you start stressing about it and you're worried. And then you really have to start dealing with bills. And what it does, is it starts creating anxiety. You're not even enjoying your special toy that you bought or those new, all those new clothes because you're so stressed about how much money you don't have because your bills are so high and it robs us emotionally. And then furthermore, not only are you dealing with your present situation, you start thinking of the future and it creates worry. How in the world would I, am I ever going to emerge out of this? My problem is becoming compounded. This is difficult. And let me also tell you another area. If you do not have financial margin you are, and you are married, you are robbing yourself relationally. One of the greatest causes of marital tension is money and how it is used and all the chaos that ensues when we're, our spending is out of control. And it could be one or it could be both. But if you are not on the same page, if you are not pursuing margin, I have a feeling you're experiencing a lot of tension. And, you know, and it shouldn't be this way. In fact, that is why we're taking a Sunday to really emphasize this. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of unhappy married people because of this one subject. They are robbing themselves relationally. There's a great source of tension. They have no idea how they're going to make it. And instead of enjoying God, enjoying one another, enjoying the things they have, they are stressing and fighting or moving into cold war zones where we don't like talk to each other for a few months or a few years. You know what God's after? You know, he's not after our money, right? You know that? He's after our, our heart, right? And what he's asking is that you surrender all of it to him. You see, when we surrender our finances to our Heavenly Father, He's going to bring us to a point where we're going to learn how to live with financial margin. And before he deals with our income, you know what he's going to deal with most likely? Our outgo. Okay? Before he deals with our income, he's going to deal with our outgo. All of us, we all have financial limits. Okay? All of us do. The question is, who's setting your financial limits? Our culture that just says, Bye, bye, bye. You want it? Leverage yourself? Or are you going to let God set some limits where you actually take a step or two back and you create just a little bit of margin 
in your life. You know, if we're living without margin in our life, it's creating a great deal of stress. And so this is kind of what happens. We like go, God, I just want to I just want to thank you for my family. I just want to thank you for my church and my job and my education and all of these things that you provided me and my money and my income. And I just want to thank you because you've given it and it's just all for me. And God says, wrong. No, it wasn't all for you. You've just consumed it all for you. See, what happens is we want God to be involved in a lot of our areas of our life. We want God to take care of our health, take care of our family, provide for us, bless us. We want God, we got some sort of little problem, little tension, relational. Oh, we're praying, right? Oh, is it, don't you find that you've got some problems in your life, wherever they come from, circumstances, relationships. Don't you find that your prayer life increases, right? We want God in all of these areas of our life. But oftentimes we just like, but God, you're not going to be in charge of my money because this is my money and I can know better than you, right? And we just close the doors. You're not getting in. And what God says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to leave you there. If, if we have to create some scenarios in your life some trials to break you down where you recognize that I am the Lord of your life and you are willing to yield to me. You're going to live in your your state where you're going to try to control your finances and it ends up just kind of destroying us. We get a warped sense of life and God is saying, no, open the door to me. But we are so scared that God is going to do something with with our life that is going to create havoc. But he says, no, I want you to learn to trust me. Open the doors. Now, how do some people, how do some people actually have financial margin? Where, how do they get that? I, I mean, there's people in our church, lots of people in our church have financial margin. You, you know, people work. Um, how, how did they, how did they come to that point? Maybe your parents, they have financial margin. Where did that come from? Okay, I'm going to tell you the secret. You want to know? They chose to. What? That's it. They made a choice. To live not beyond their means, but below it. They made that choice. You know, when we do premarital counseling at Fellowship, one of our assignments that we give all of our young couples, and and by the way, premarital counseling is the best. I mean, they're so excited. They love God. They love one another. I mean, it's just like you can hardly contain all the enthusiasm and and excitement there. And we we have these projects. We always send them out with assignments. And one of the assignments we give them is we have them work through a budget. And I'm like, what is this? Well, all these blanks here, we've got to fill them out. Really? Okay, yeah. And we find out their income, generally a staggering amount, and then they have all of their expenses. Now, we don't even, they don't have to show us to us. In fact, we provide, you say, hey, if you would like to meet someone, a financial expert, we'll actually put you in, in connection with them, and they will help you work out a budget. Well, we do this, Why? Because we want them going off in the right direction. We're not trying to find out, like, can you afford to get married and live? No, but we we want them to get a realistic picture of what finances look like. You're going to live on a percentage of your income. you just got to figure out what that percentage is going to be. So let me give you just a very simple financial uh, means of developing priorities and perspective here. It's kind of a simple little formula. First of all, you got your income. What your your job or your sources of income are being provided, your total income, that's minus, then you minus giving. Maybe that is a, 
a percentage. Maybe you're saying, I, I really, we're going to take some steps. We're going to move to giving 5% or, or 10% or maybe more. You know, just find, you know, identify what is it that you're going to honor the Lord from the first of your produce. Then, minus, you also then have to subtract taxes. Now, you have to pay your taxes. If you feel like no one loves me, don't pay your taxes for a while. And you'll find out there's people that are thinking of you, right? And they work for the government. And they'd literally like to talk with you and see how you're doing and how they can help you, right? Now, this is really interesting. In our country, uh, if our government has it structured that if you give generously and you save wisely, the government basically says, we'll take less of your money than we otherwise would. It's really pretty interesting to see how it is structured. But you have to have your taxes. You have to have a means of saving up to make sure you pay your taxes. Okay? And then there's also debt repayment. Okay? If you have debt, most people do, you have to have a means of repaying it. And you want to get yourself in a position where you've got, where you no longer have consumer debt. And that actually creates margin. Okay? In fact, it prevents you from going into debt in the next time. Okay? So you have to have a means of having debt repayment. And then you also want to have, subtract from your income, savings, whether that be a little or a, a sum. Now, when we talk about savings, it's kind of like, well, Christians really don't talk a lot about finances. In fact, uh, we, our secular counterparts that maybe have nothing to do with God, they actually are generally much more savvy in the whole area of finances than Christians. I'm not sure why especially with the amount of attention that Jesus and the Bible gives to finances. But let's talk a little bit about the savings. Savings is in basically investing for the future, realizing that there's going to be needs in your life, maybe a crisis, or maybe you're at the, toward the end of your life are certainly not going to be able to provide the same, or command the same kind of income that you have presently. And the Bible talks quite a bit about savings. Like, for instance, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20 says, There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. But a foolish man swallows it up. Okay? So the fool basically just uses it all up. The Living Bible actually translates it this way. The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. And the book of Proverbs actually extols saving. So like one of the favorite little creatures in the book of Proverbs is the ant. Okay? You're stepping on them. And you're trying to buy like little orthane and kill them all off. But God wants you to learn from these little creatures. Okay, and that's why they're highlighted in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 30, verse 25, it says the ants are not strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. Why do they do that? Because they recognize that winter's coming when they can't prepare food. And that is what we need to do. We need to realize there are going to be, a, there are going to be times in our life, certainly at the end of our life, we're not going to be able to live on the same amount, not be able to receive the same amount of income, and yet we're going to need financial resources in which to live. Let me just say something. If you think that Uncle Sam is going to pay for all of your retirement years and cover you through Social Security, you've got another thing coming. In fact, those of you who watch Social Security realize it's probably going to end up social scarcity because it is going away. You have to have some means of living. Social Security is certainly going to pay for some. You've got some Medicare benefits, but there are some savings. And so you actually learn how to set aside some money. And when and you don't like just like, well, I'm going to put it in my mattress. OK, I'm going to dig a hole in my backyard. Actually, like remember when we talked in Luke 19 where we Jesus said to that one guy's like, what in the world are you thinking? I gave you money and you and you put it in your little handkerchief. I mean, the remember the, the landowner said, why didn't you just go and take it to the bank? And at least I could have made interest on my money. That would have been at least reasonable. But you held on to it. and You did nothing with it. See, 
we, uh, we need to prepare, and so you don't just like save it or dig a hole in the ground, but there are all sorts of vehicles in which you can use your money to make money. In fact, wasn't that Luke 19, what wasn't that about? He said, go and do business with this until I come back. And so you can find there's a lot of vehicles to do that. There's investments, there's CDs, there's money market accounts. You can invest in commodities. Some people do real estate, but you use your money to make money. That puts you in a position to, to give. Sometimes we find people give significant gifts. Why? Because they've made money. They've invested well. It also provides for you for your later years. Now, Okay, we start talking about investments and about money and saving it. Let me give you the one great, big, huge danger. The Bible says this is noble and it is good and it is good stewardship. But let me give you the great, big danger is that you and I will get too focused on our money that we've saved, on the resources that we're setting aside. And what happens is your investments and your portfolio becomes your God, your little G-O-D. We have a little stock market fluctuation. People start throwing themselves off buildings. Why? Because they thought their God died and had let them down. You see, when we get so focused on our money, what it does is we become extremely selfish. We start hoarding and we become real-life Ebenezer Scrooge-type people. And it changes and warps our character. And so instead of finding God our great joy and delight, we are focused on our money and our finances, and we cling to it. And that is the great danger. That is why we have to approach these matters prayerfully and with all sincerity. But God is trying to create margin in our life. Let me tell you, you're going against the culture to do that. In fact, we are bombarded with sophisticated advertising and marketing appeals to get you to buy And we can associate a car and make you think that this is going to change your life and make you a better person. Where does that come from? It comes from marketing. Marketing oftentimes creates desires for things that you really don't need. But it brings you to a point where, like, I've just got to have it. And let me also give you one other modern-day reality that makes it very difficult to live with margin. In fact, all of you probably have one in your pocket. It's called a credit card. I just want to talk just for a minute about credit cards. You can get a credit card without, with minimum worthiness, okay? I mean, you're, you're in college, you just want you to have credit cards. And you need to understand how credit cards work. A credit card is this. See, we used to live in a society where you had to pay money for goods, okay? Or you could put a down payment on something, and then you worked and saved, and then you brought the rest of the money, and then you got your goods, Okay? Some of you, especially in in a previous generation, are familiar with that's how it used to work. But now we have something called a credit card. And all you do is you take this little piece of plastic and you lay it down and you have it instantly. In fact, there's hardly anything to the transaction. It is so simple and it is painless. And all of a sudden you acquired what you wanted. And maybe you just five minutes ago decided, I really want that. I can't live without it. And you give the little card and you got it. Now, let me just talk to you a little bit about credit cards. And there's a recent book called Affluenza. And what they did is they, they it's got some pretty fascinating material. For instance, they found in 1986 that there were more high schools than shopping centers. 20 years later, 2006, we have two times the number of shopping centers than we do high schools. In fact, Americans have a billion credit cards. 
And are you ready for this? Americans have over a trillion dollars worth of debt on their credit cards. That is not talking about mortgages and real estate. That is talking about consumer debt that they have put upon themselves. And now let me give you some inside look from credit card experts. Credit card experts say once the average cardholder has $800 of debt on that card, they consider that they have them for life because most people can never get to a point where they could pay off $800 and they got them for a lifetime. And, and experts have found, and merchants know this, that if you have a credit card and you're making purchases, it has been studied that a person will spend up to 80% more when they're using a credit card than if they were using cash or writing a check. And that is why merchants will welcome credit cards because it's easy and people are like, well, yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll just take that. Uh, yeah, I'll just get it right now. I'll put it on my card and it, it's done. Now, the, the common statistic is this. If you're a family and you use credit cards to pay for everything, you will spend 34% more than if you were on some sort of cash-based system or writing checks. Now, Ron Blue, this financial expert, goes, well, I don't think so. That doesn't sound right, man. There are a lot of smart people. They're not going to be blowing money like that. So he and his wife decided that for a year they'd go on a cash-based system, and they were going to disprove that little fanciful claim that's out there. And, he's, and he actually said, I, I live with a bare-bones budget. But he went on to a cash system for a year to prove, disprove this myth about credit cards. And what he found at the end is that he not only had to, he really considered every single purchase, much more than he ever had before. And at the end of the year, when he went back onto, onto a cash-based system, he actually had spent 33% less. And he was blown away. Now, I'm not saying, oh, we've got to take our little cards, we've got a bunch of scissors in the back, we're going to all chop them up, okay, and we're going to have a meltdown. No, I'm just saying, you're going to use your credit cards? You want to use them ultra-responsibly. Because that credit card and that company that owns that card can own you real quick. And so what we need to do is we need to get our financial priorities right. It's God's first. We've got to pay our taxes. We've got to have some means of debt repayment, savings for the future. That's fourth. And guess where you and I are? Fifth. We're in fifth place. But we've got it backwards, don't we? This is how we've got it. It's me first. And I'm going to spend and do whatever I want, whenever I want, and I'm going to buy anything that I want. And everything else just kind of trickles down. And the reason that we function that way and we live life with no margin is because we think we're owners, not managers, not stewards. You know, friends, guess what? If you and I, we learn to follow good financial principles in our life, create some margin, I mean, we're going to be able to stand up and say, like, you know, we got margin. Yes, we do. We got margin. How about you, right? We can do that. But that all isn't based upon whether you and I are going to learn to be good stewards. I'd like to give you some resources. you find those in your notes there. These are some books. I encourage you to look at them. Uh, Ron Blue has this book, The New Master Your Money Workbook. We went through it as a Sunday school class. This is a great overview on total financial principles and planning. Um, it talks about investment, wills, debt, insurance. It also gives you helpful worksheets. It is well worth your investment. There is another one, Dave Ramsey. He's got a book called Total Money Makeover. This talks about uh, 
dead and how he addresses the subject. He also brings about behavior modification. He gives a lot of war stories of people like you and me who've come out of debt and are living with a whole other uh, sense of financial freedom. Some great war stories. And then there's Randy Alcorn's book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which gives you the big picture orientation and really talks about a biblical worldview and addresses hard issues toward you and your money. But you've got to budget wisely. Let me give you a fifth. After you have this nice, fancy budget and you've kind of prioritized and you've got your things in a row and you've got figured out every item of how, how much you plan on each one of these categories, you have to then execute it. You have to follow through. You have to, fifth principle, learn how to spend carefully. You have to, first of all, avoid debt on depreciating assets. If it's going to have little value after you buy it, you want to be very careful that you, would, you don't like go into debt on something like that. You want to understand how interest works. You want to learn how to say no to impulsive giving just, or impulsive buying. Just because you have the word sale on something doesn't mean that you have to have it or it's even that great of a deal. I don't know what it is about these four letters, S-A-L-E, and like, oh, what a great deal. I need it. You don't need it. It just says sale. Okay. But you have to learn how to spend carefully, learn how to exercise restraint, maybe even do some thinking through on before you make your purchases. Okay, and let me give you six. Monitor carefully. Okay, monitor carefully. See where your money is going. Now, this actually can be very easily done with some programs like Quicken or QuickBooks. But you need to have an idea of where your finances are going. Versus just spending and I'm not sure. If you're going to be a manager of your money, you have to know where your money's going. And these are programs that make it very easy. I mean, it should be no mystery to you or in your marriage where your money's going. You only have a certain amount. You can count it. You can see it. And you know where it's going. These, these are just merely tools that will help you on that. This, by the way, I think is very helpful. When Karen and I, before we were married, when we got engaged... I was like, okay, we gotta, we got to figure out where we're going financially. So I created this, five, these, this card system. I got these five-by-seven cards, and I put all these categories, and we tracked our money you know, before we got married to find out, okay, what really is it going to cost us to live? And we then tra- transitioned over to Quicken, which makes it a lot easier. But you want to have a means of monitoring your finances. And let me give you the seventh. The seventh component of being a good manager of your finances is to enjoy thankfully. You know, one of the prominent charges given to pastors is that you have to help your people learn how to work and with, well with their money and be good stewards of what they have. In fact, the instruction is summed up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. It says, instruct those who are rich. By the way, that's us. Okay? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Make sure your people do not get caught up in a society where money is their God. But what? But fix their hope on God, who richly supplies all things to enjoy. Do you see that? It hardly even ever gets mentioned in a church. But God has given us things so that we will enjoy them, not enslave us, but that we actually enjoy them because they're gifts from God. And he goes on to say in verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Life lived in love with God. So these are the components of good financial management. Now, let's say um, you hired me 
to be your financial manager. And I, Grant, I'd like to make you a little deal here. I want you to manage my money. Okay? I'll give you a small little fee, but I want you to manage it. Great. And so he gave me your money. I'm like, oh, great. You know, and I started buying things and doing things here. And my kids and I, we had a great vacation to Korea out to eat and did all sorts of wonderful things. And about a month later, you're like, hey, uh, tell me, what are you doing with my money? How's it going? Uh, well, um, uh, that, well, I'm not. I mean, I think it's going well. well where, did you, where did you send it? Where did it go? Uh, well, I can think of some of the places, uh, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, what would you do if you'd hired me to be your financial manager of your resources? You'd probably let me, for about 60 more seconds, be your financial manager, and then you'd fire me, right? You're like, what are you doing? You know, God has given us resources. He's entrusted them to us. And he has called you a steward and a manager. And friends, we need to remember that present faithfulness yields future privilege. We've got to get this down. Don't write it off as, oh, that's unspiritual to think about money. Actually, God thinks a lot about what you and I do with our money because it's a great indicator of what we believe in our heart. Dr. Carl F.H. Henry in a 1990 interview said this, I don't think God despises riches. In fact, he gives them to us. What he despises is the misuse of them, and he rewards stewardship. Just imagine if every Christian in the world had an understanding of what is being presented in the Bible and actually became good stewards. Imagine what could be done in our community, what could be done in our country, in the world, if we actually believed God at his word and truly exercised ourselves as good managers and good stewards. What I'd like you to do this week, I'd like you to identify two things that you can do in the next 10 days to help you and I become better stewards of our finances. In fact, if you'd like, we have a card in your bulletin. Uh, you're, you can mark down, you know, I'm interested in maybe signing up for a class or some help. Don't be afraid to ask help. There are financial advisors that can help you become good stewards. And I'd like to, in our final few minutes here, to have you hear the story of a couple in our church. And so I'm going to ask if Dave and Roxy Stryker could come forward. They're going to share a little bit about their story with us. Thank you, Grant. Um, kind of hard to follow that one. But uh, we've been asked to share a little bit, and I'm thankful that we get to do that. Um, me and Roxy have been blessed to grow up in uh, families that uh, give us good examples. Uh, we had parents that shared with us. We had friends that also did the same. And they taught us how to manage money. They exampled it to us in a way that we've seen it day in and day out. Um, we did go out and take small vacations at times or go places for a day. But... A lot of times there wasn't money to do it for long periods. They did not go and go bankrupt to try to go on vacations. We lived within our means. And we've seen that model to us each and every day. We also had friends that shared with us. And one of the things I'd like to share is that when it comes to giving and giving to the church or different types of 
projects. Early in our marriage, we would just go and look in the checkbook and see if there was some money there. And, well, yeah, I guess we can give a little bit. Then a friend shared with us how he was doing it. And he said, you know what I do? When I get my paycheck, I take the very first fruits of it, determine how much it is I want to give to God's work, put it in a separate checking book. And from there, we pay our, our uh, tithe and we, we give to God's work. So Roxy and I did something very similar to that. We just took our ledger and we made it God's ledger. In that spot there, we would take our tithing money, how much we determined to give, which we increase from time to time because we look at it and we look at the needs around us and we find that we'd like to give more. And so what we do is we need to put more in there. And that's worked very well. We're thankful for that friend who shared that with us because it really freed us up to give to God's work. And when we look into that account, God's always got money. And we have been blessed to uh, have that shared with us. Um, We also believe in being team workers. You cannot work in a marriage, nor can you work with your finances if you're not on the same team. And on our team, we have God at the head, and then it's Roxy and myself. And he's the one that leads us. And we don't have my money and Roxy's money. We have our money, and God is a leader in that. And we just really thank having friends that shared that with us and really helped us so that we could be free to give to God's work. I'm going to turn this over to Roxy now because early when this church was built, we had chairs to pick up. And I said to Roxy, you know, I think I'm going to help pick up chairs because that's kind of my servant type of work. And she said, well, while you're doing that, my Gift is the gift of Gab, and so I'm going to go out and visit. So I'm going to give it to her now. Thank you. <laughs> and that's the truth. Okay. Um, Dave is right. We have been team players. I found that uh, it really, really helps when you are on the same page as a couple. And um, we've both been frugal our whole lives. Dave a little more than me, but we still have lived within our means our whole lives. So um, that's been really neat. The first 10 years of our marriage, we had, Dave had a good paying job, and we had you know, a bunch of kids, three children, and everything kind of went smoothly. And then about the ninth year of our married life, Dave quit his job, and we started a little business on our own. And uh, that business did well, did um, not so well most of the time, but it was a little business that we ran out of our home. And I remember that one year, it was just the most difficult year, and our um, adjusted gross income at the end of that year was $7,000. And so we lived on $7,000 that year. But here's the amazing story. I think how God is so faithful. One thing is our children were in a private school at that time. That year, not only did we live on that amount of money, but we paid our tuition of $3,000, leaving us about a $4,000 income for the year. And you're thinking, this was only like 25 years ago. How is that possible? And I started to look at that and see, how did we do it? We did not go into debt that year. And uh, and uh, one of the things I see is that God really provided for us and kind of some 
uh, humorous, miraculous ways. One thing my brother was in a vending business, and he had these boxes of frozen hamburgers pre-cooked, you know, to put on a patty that you can buy out of the machine. And he was he didn't want to do that anymore. He didn't want to make them. So he said, hey, um, do you want these hamburgers? Because <laughs> they're just going to get freezer burned, and I'm going to throw them out. And I said, oh, yeah, I think we could use those. <laughs> and that was, um, you know, you could cut them up into potato soup and all kinds of fun ways that you could do that. And God provided with us that way. We had a garden that year, and it was also a real good year for apples. So friends had trees that were blooming, you know, and providing apples. We, Dave and I quart, uh, canned 90 quart of applesauce that year. Lasted us more than the year. I'll tell you that. But we had a lot of applesauce. And then um, we had minimal expenses during that year, too, because our business was in our home. Our church was less than a block away. The school was less than two blocks away. The bank was just down the street a ways. And so we only had to drive a car once a week. And the other thing is, because we had started out with a pretty good paying job, our house was already paid for, and so we didn't have car payment, our house payments or car payments that year. And it really made a big difference. But it seemed like little by little we would save a little money, and then something would happen and that money would have to go, you know, be gone. When we moved to Texas, it was um, we kind of a humorous first year. We had a fellowship family, and at the end of the year we kind of nicknamed ourselves the Unemployed Fellowship family because Dave was the only one who had a job and all the others were um, recent college grads or in in their getting their masters and uh, levels and and they they didn't have any work and so they would come over and that's when I learned about uh, soy protein that you can add to hamburger and make it spread and everything that we served was casseroles and soups and things like that and they they kept coming so it must not have been too bad. And I thought that was just kind of really neat to see how God had done that. Then we saved up just a little bit of money, and I kind of trying to get ahead. And um, our son had a, we had a brand new car, new to us, new car, and our we hadn't put um, anything but liability insurance on yet. And he had an accident with the car, and the little bit of savings we had went down the drain. And so I kind of came to the conclusion that God just doesn't want us to have money. And so that was kind of how I had, had learned to live. But then. Um, over the years, uh, the past, you know, 15 or 20 years, things started to change a little bit for us. And uh, God blessed us in amazing ways. And one of the ways he blessed us is when we purchased our home, it was an, a miraculous story, but we basically got our house for about half of what houses were selling for at that time. And, um, you know, I could go into long details to tell you about that, but it just was an amazing thing to me. And our son had prayed just ten days before that, that God would show us the house he wanted us to have. He was a teenager at that time. Show us the house he wanted us to have and that we'd find it within ten days. And that's exactly what happened. You know, so it was really a neat miracle. Then not too long after that, Dave um, had a little old lady that he used to work for and care for, and she had to move from her home because she was no longer to live, able to live there. And the only way she agreed to move is if Dave would buy her house. So the son sold us the house, financed it for us, and sold it to us for the price of a good used car. And so now we own two homes. And um, and, I, and as I started looking, one day I looked and I saw 
that, you know, we've, got, we've been able to put away a little bit of money for uh, retirement. We've been able to live frugally within our means. But this verse came to me that he who gives, God will restore a hundredfold. And I sat and added it up. And God restored to us a hundredfold on any of the giving we've ever done for him. And I always thought, that's just, you know, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, all those things Grant was saying. But it was, it was a, a uh, financial return that God gave us on our money by what, he, what um, he provided us in those two homes. And so I, um, I got up here today as a testimony to what God can do. And also just to let you know personally, the freedom that we have when we're lit, not living in debt has just been the most wonderful thing. If God calls us to do things, we have the freedom to do it because we're not strapped to that debt. And I just thank God that we were born in the era before credit cards were easily available because I, I know it, it could have happened to us just like anybody else. But God, God spared us from, from that, and for that reason, we feel like we need to be his testimony today to show you the best way. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let me just tell you, present faithfulness yields future privilege. Let's go before the Lord now in prayer. Lord, we want to thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture on this very critical subject of the possessions that you've entrusted to us, the money that you have given us, but for a time. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd find each of us with hearts yielded to you, desires that you would perform your work in us, that you would be glorified. So whatever steps we need to take, Lord, I pray that as a church we would take them together, individually considering what is it that we need to do, whether that is to get a firm grasp or uh, take a good look at some of our spending patterns, whatever they might be. Lord, we want to honor you in all things. So we praise you and we thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.